Hey everybody, welcome to Thumbnail, a visual arts podcast. I'm Joe Rossert, illustrator, animator, and adjunct professor. And I'm Louis Rosignal, visual artist, and today we're going to be talking about working with clients, and specifically we'll be talking about the first work we did for clients, basically how we dealt with that, how we dealt with getting paid and contracts and just communicating with them, and also what we do differently now, maybe what we learned from that. Because I know when I worked with the clients in the beginning, I kind of just assumed this is how it's going to be for all clients. And that's just not the case. It's very different. Yeah. I thought that would be kind of an interesting thing. And also, how did you get that work? Because a lot of people out there are in a situation where they're part-time artists and they want to get work for clients. They'd love to do some illustration work but they don't know how about to go and get that stuff. And so we're not going to be telling you all the different ways to get client work, but in our stories, we'll tell how we got that work. And maybe that'll give you some ideas. Mm-hmm. I could start it off with telling more of a story on how things kind of rolled into the first project and then how it brought me to where I am today a little bit. Perfect. So it all started actually because of school, because of going to art school. And like we said before, you immediately buy into a network when you go to art school. So that's always a huge benefit to that. One illustration class, we went to do a studio visit with an illustrator in town. His name was Scott Nash. And I remember loving the studio visit. And we were all about to leave. My professor at the time, Marianne, she's now the chair of the illustration department at Mecca. She pulled me aside and encouraged me to show Scott my sketchbook. I'm like, okay, I'm not really up for showing sketchbook stuff because it's not finished. But yeah, I'll show my sketchbook. I have it. And then from there, that's when my relationship started with Scott. Weeks later, I get a call from him to come back to the studio and meet a studio mate of his, Wade. He works for Activision and he does a lot of programming and he is coaching another student on how to do programming. And they're cloning Mario Brothers as a way to learn how to code. Oh, okay. So they're interested in maybe making a game and reskinning Mario Brothers with different art. And so Scott thought maybe I would be interested in this project because I'd be learning about that kind of stuff too and could be mutually beneficial. So I came in and I had a chat and ended up agreeing to working on this project. But then this project grew to be something way bigger than just a clone. We completely made our own game. It was called Super Dust Bunny. It was on the App Store for a while. It's currently not on the App Store because we didn't keep up with new updates. Right, right. Software updates and stuff. Uh, Operating systems updates. Mm -hmm. So anyways, that relationship started. And so I was always now in and out of this studio, Scott Nash's studio that they shared. I'm building this relationship with everyone there. And a couple of weeks later, a month later or so, Scott came to me with a project of his own that he wanted to work with me on. I think this was essentially my first real hired freelance work as an illustrator. Did you get paid any for the app, the game? Or was that more like an internship type thing? That was more of a trading services for services thing. Okay. It eventually led to some money from app sales. And then Wade also put some money down to help me out right when I graduated. Nice. To get the project done out of his own pocket. So there wasn't really an agreement, if that's what you're getting at. No contract stuff. It's more passion project. But 
the money from that project was interesting. It actually started with $200 from Wade to open a doing business as account with my bank. Mm-hmm. And that's how I started my business's bank account because of this project, because of an in-kind donation, basically, right to start Fort House Studios. And so that's what we ran all the programming licenses for Apple and stuff through. And so that's why we needed that. I started this project with Scott Nash, also due to this whole networking experience. So I get this job from Scott Nash to work with him to develop a toy line called Mego Pops. And we were going to pitch this toy line. And we did pitch this toy line to Hasbro. A great learning experience for me when I was building and building turnarounds for these different toy characters that you could pop together and build things with. And so I was doing different lines of that. And the agreement was an hourly agreement where I tracked my own hours because we didn't know how long the project was going to be. Was this just a toy line that Scott just thought up on his own? Yeah, Scott thought it up on his own and wanted to pursue it. Okay. So that was an out-of-pocket thing for him. The reason I say this because it seems like a pretty common thing that most artists that are successful and are doing well do a lot of self-directed projects where nobody hired them to do it. It's something that they've taken on and they're going to try to pitch it to some other companies maybe, or they're going to try to raise money. So you have to be pretty proactive. Yeah. Even someone like Scott, who's a very established artist, is still doing things like that. And so I had a full load of classes. I think this was junior year of college. And so I had a full load. I was taking six classes. Four of them were studio classes. So I was just maxing out, trying to get the most out of it. And then also doing this these projects on the side, which were essentially internships, mm-hmm. but for no credit. I didn't need the credit. I just wanted the experience. That's the most important part anyway. If you can get credit, that's a bonus, but to get that experience is huge. That was the first things that got my feet wet and made me realize how important networking is Mm because I had a great relationship with my professor who then referred me to someone who referred me to someone. And now I'm a working artist, essentially, right? Right. Very early in my career. At that time, was Scott working at Maine College of Art? No, he wasn't. No. Because when I went years later, he was working. So that's why I was asking. Yeah, the whole stretch of time I was there, he might have taught a class or two when I was there, but we never crossed paths in the school. He actually became the head of the illustration department for a little while. He was the founder of the illustration department. Oh, he was? And then he left and then came back as the head? I'm not really sure. He was the head when I first started, but then Marianne took over. Okay, yeah. So I think, yeah, he was the head. The head got passed around a little bit when I was there. He didn't teach many classes, but he was technically the head and he'd pop in here and there. Yeah, but that relates to another story that is kind of my origin story where Mecca has job boards. And so I was always looking at that as a student to see what kind of extra jobs I could get. And senior year, yes, I think it was actually right after graduating, some of my bigger jobs came from the job board. So one being Idealware, which is a nonprofit organization that used to exist. It doesn't exist anymore, but it helps other nonprofits with technology decisions. And they needed a graphic designer part-time. And I ended up applying for that and getting that position, which then turned into a graph designer slash illustrator position. So most of the time I'm building a custom illustrated library for their presentations and stuff. And so that was really great first job because it was so tailored to what I do. It was just lucky. And then at the same time, I was also doing art direction from another job that I got for a t-shirt company that was trying to start called Gnome Saiyan. The main character was a gnome, oh, yeah. and their slogan was Gnome Saiyan. So it was, 
Who came up with goofy, that? Goofy t-shirts. The client came up with that and was working with an artist from California, I believe. But the artist from California didn't want to continue with the project anymore. And they wanted to continue the brand and wanted me to basically copy this other guy's style and make some more t-shirts. Was this the guy that you said had a lot of money and that's why he was doing this brand? Because it was like a passion project or was that something different? I think it was a passion project. That might have been a different client. Oh, okay. But this guy was great. They were trying to start this direct-to-garment t-shirt company, so they bought all the equipment to do the direct-to-garment printing. That's expensive equipment. Yeah, it's not cheap. No, it's not cheap at all. Which is crazy when you think about it, because you can do print-on-demand and stuff. It's just a better way to go, because you don't have to put all this money up front just to find out that your company's not going to make it, and you wasted all that money. They ended up getting sold. They got bought out by another company. So this Noam Sayan company became a company called Infinity DTG, which is Infinity Direct to Garment. And so they weren't only making their own t-shirt line, they were making t-shirts for other people and trying to grow that business. Anyways, what's so important about this relationship with the t-shirt guy is that he took me, Chris Newell was his name, he took me under his wing and introduced me to a networking group, the first networking group that I was a part of called The Round Table. And it was a local networking group where only one of each type of job could be allowed in it. That's right. You're not directly competing with people in the group. One lawyer, one doctor, one artist, that type of thing. Right. If there were more lawyers, it was because there were different kinds of lawyers, yep. just for injury or just for wills or stuff like that. So I ended up being like the graphic design illustrator artist piece, and he knew that they didn't have that. And so he brought me in there, and that's where I learned how to pitch my business and talk shop and see what kind of common phrases I could say that can explain what I do to the general public right? and how to teach someone else how to pitch my business essentially. That's actually really good because when you're in art school, you learn a lot about talking about art and breaking down art, but you're always talking to other artists. Yeah. So in this case, you're able to talk to people that really know probably not a lot about art and you have to explain your business in a way that they can get it. And get it easily. What can I do for you, right? Or Mm -hmm. what is the big part of it? Anyways, that's where I learned all my networking and how to be a business because I was then able to connect with these other people, have one-on-one coffee with them every week, always a different person from the group. And this was like scheduled stuff. It was just so great because I learned so much about business in such a short amount of time from a lot of different businesses and just soaked up everything like a sponge. That's where I met my accountant who I still use today, who told me early on that I was screwing up my books, doing everything wrong. (laughs) And she directed me in the right path on what to do, how to do it. And so it, just so, so important to make these networks and to have these networks. And that's why I think it's so great that I can now take all this information that I've learned because of trial by fire and kind of package it up in a much easier way for artists, for this podcast, for my students, and save them years of their lives if they listen and ask questions. What I found interesting too is when I asked you, hey, let's do a podcast where we do our first jobs and you have a hard time figuring out what your first job was. And when you're talking about those different jobs, sometimes it is hard, probably most times it is hard to figure out what was your first job because a lot of times you're maybe doing internships, you're not really getting paid or you're getting paid in unconventional ways. So that's important to realize that when you're first starting out in art, you're going to probably do some jobs, maybe for free, 
maybe for trading and maybe just for the experience. But at the same time, you want to be careful because there will be a lot of people that will offer you a job just for exposure. And those jobs sometimes aren't worth it. So it really is a matter of taking each job case by case. What will I learn? What will I get out of it? If you're not going to get paid, is it worth doing? Not being afraid to say no. That was hard for me at first. Is like when people came to me with ideas, I would be like, I want that money. Yeah, it's just a little bit, but I'm broke and I want to buy a sandwich later. Sure, I'll do that real quick. But you got to be careful about that. When it's early and you're just kind of getting things going, use those opportunities as your failure moments to learn from and move forward. You can learn little things like even how to talk to a client or what not to say, what to say, how they're perceiving you, right? stuff like that. Which was the first job out of those ones, or maybe not out of those ones, but which was your first job where from the beginning you knew it was a paid job, you worked out the details ahead of time, and you knew how much you were going to get paid? Maybe you did a contract. Was it any of those jobs or was it a different job? All those jobs I mentioned were hourly. And so I knew I would just keep getting paid as I kept going. That's pretty rare for illustration jobs though, isn't it? I mean, I haven't had any that were hourly. It is pretty rare unless the project is open-ended. Right, right. And so a lot of the projects I started with were Mm open-ended to a point where I didn't know what the end was going to be. They didn't know what the end was going to be. So we agreed to an hourly rate, which was a really low hourly rate. But at the time, it's affordable for them. But they're not realizing that things take a lot longer for me then. I could do those jobs way quicker now. Right, but right. my hourly rate would be way higher. That might be enough for to scare them away for those kind of jobs. Yeah. Which is a little interesting too. And what you said about that game in the app made me think just how awful it is to do jobs like that if you're the one that's backing it. The fact that if you don't keep up with all of the new operating system updates, it's just going to end up off the app store because it won't be compatible. So it's this continuing ongoing job. You can't just make an app or a game and then put it up there. Okay, I'm done with that. I'll move on. You have to keep up with it. And you need the know-how to do it. I don't know any of the programming at all. Right. And I will never know it, (laughs) you know. But there's watching Wade code the things I wanted him to code. Just watching him, it looked like he was on the Matrix watching those screens. It's insane. I don't know how they do it. And it's just ongoing. I couldn't imagine, like, if I'm doing a book, right? Imagine if every time they update, say if it's going to be a digital book, if every time they upgraded the iPad, you had to go in there and change the layout. Oh, Because that's right. basically what it is. Or, like, changing the bleed. Right, just because the operating system update they did threw everything off. So the pictures yeah. in the book are half on one page and half on the next, and now you've got to go and fix right. all that. And that's what was happening. It spilled over to the art side, too, because there were some things that I had to fix because they're now pixelated because the screen quality got that much better. Yeah. It was nuts. That's crazy. Absolutely nuts. But it's such a great learning experience. I'd be psyched to do another game if I could. This time, I'd love to get paid for it. (laughs) Yeah. You know. That's really interesting. So the jobs that you got at the beginning were so all over the place. Oh, crazy all over the place. You're talking about like a t-shirt design and then a game and then pitching a toy. And just so you know, Scott Nash is like, I know so many artists and illustrators that went through Mecca and their first job they got was through Scott somehow. Mm -hmm. He's helped so many people. Yeah, he's really good about lifting students up. Which is really cool of him because I'm thinking about the job that he got for me 
I'll just tell the story quickly and then I can get into it in a minute more. But it was like a magazine that came to him that they were looking for editorial work. He could have just said, yeah, I can do it for you and taken the money. Mm-hmm. He's a working illustrator, right? But he's, well, I'll see if I can find someone at the school that could use the experience. Maybe he was too busy to take the work, but I think it's also a matter of just the fact that he likes to help new artists. And it's something that a lot of artists should maybe think about because a lot of times they view all other artists as competition and it's more of a Mm. community than competition. It should be helping other people out. It's not as much of a competition as you think it would be because it's really, you're hired based on your style. Right. So it's like we're not competing so much because our styles are so different. But there are a lot of artists that are in a style that's similar to me and then similar to you. And you are competing with those artists a lot of times. Sure. You're right that not all artists are competing. But the numbers come way down, especially when you're looking locally and within your network, because you could most likely be like one of a handful of artists that they know personally. Right. It's very easy for even my high school friends talking with them where I'm still the artist that they know. I'm the one artist they know. Right. Based on their entire networks, you know. I can get into a little bit about some of the early jobs I had, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about what we do differently now, as far as like the procedure and working with clients. So like I said, I did work. My first jobs were through Scott, and it was through a magazine, in local magazine, not a big distribution. It's called Dispatch. And they came to Scott. They were looking for, basically, they had only used photography in their magazine up until this point. And they wanted to start using maybe some illustration. So they reached out to Scott because he's the head of the illustration department at Maine College of Art. And the company is in Portland, Maine, in the same city. I knew him at that point. I was going to Maine College of Art and I knew him pretty well. And he knew that my style of work would fit into editorial. And at the time, the portfolio I was building was aimed at editorial. That's what I really thought I wanted to do. And that's what I thought that I would do mostly. Right. And so he got me a meeting with the guy from Dispatch and we talked. And the first job he gave to me was an article on prison food. It was going to be written by Joe Rocio, who's like a local food critic. And he goes into like different restaurants. He has a YouTube food show. And he was going to be going into the prison and critiquing the prison food, I guess, <laughs> which is kind of interesting because that is interesting. You don't see that very often with food critics, right? But anyway, it's a really fun job. I get to work on an illustration for that article. And this is the thing with editorial work is you usually don't have a copy of the article to read a lot of times because right. Everything comes together last minute. And so they'll basically give you like, here's a couple sentences about what the article is going to be about. And that's got to be enough to make your illustration. Right. And so I worked on that and I gave them sketches. And so I was trying to do what we were taught in art school. And I was trying to do it the right way. Okay, I'm going to give you some thumbnails. And then from there, you choose which ones you like. I'll move forward with them and do some more fleshed out sketches. I'll go from there and do finished piece of the sketch that they chose. And I don't remember for sure, but I think that they were going to pay me $200 for the illustration for the article, which was not great, but it's not terrible. I was in school. Yeah, pretty low, but yeah. But it's a great opportunity. You're in school. If someone offers you $200 to do an editorial work, you're going to probably take it. Yeah. Because I just figured this is going to be great for my resume and for my portfolio. And then I ended up doing, I think, four pieces for Dispatch Magazine over the next year. Great. I became one of their only illustrators that was working with them. They had one other person that was listed in the credits in the beginning, Hillary Irons. And even the magazines, because they were monthly, but even the issues that didn't have my work in it, they still listed me as an illustrator for the magazine. So that was cool. So I was in a lot of the magazines. But I will say getting paid is hard a lot of times for that type of work. It just takes forever. 
And mm. I think I did four illustrations for them before I finally got paid for the first one. It was insane. It just took forever. And I had to keep emailing them. And that is very common with freelance illustration where it just takes a long time to get paid sometimes. It's so unprofessional in my eyes. It's so frustrating. But yeah. yeah, it happens to me all the time. And sometimes months yeah. before getting paid, I'm constantly having to check in every week or two, you know, and be like, hey, just wanted to see where this is. That's what it is. So like, I felt like I was doing that constantly. And Dispatch Magazine no longer exists. They're no longer in business. So maybe the fact that they were poor with money had something to do with it. I don't know. But it is pretty common for that to happen. Yeah. And then through that, I ended up getting another editor. It's funny because at this point, I'm just a senior in art school and I had done four pieces for them. I started doing a couple editorial pieces for Current Affairs Magazine. It's funny because your jobs were kind of like all over the place and all of my jobs were editorial illustration. So I'm like, okay, this is basically what I'll be doing. And now I don't do hardly any editorial work. Yeah. But the current affairs stuff was even more, if you can believe it, unorganized and dispatch get paid was harder. They didn't pay as much because it was a brand new magazine at the time. They were in their Mm -hmm. very first issues and... I don't know how big they are now, but I know Nathan Robinson, who's the editor and owner, he's had some pretty big articles that I've seen go viral on Twitter and stuff. He did a really big hit piece on Jordan Peterson, and that went viral and got a lot of attention because a lot of Jordan Peterson's fans were really mad about it. And I stopped getting work from him, and I did a portrait of Jordan Peterson, and I almost wonder if that had something to do with why I stopped getting work from him, because he didn't like him, so maybe he thought I was a fan, you know. I don't really know, but the point of the story was that the work that I got was all basically through Mecca. One was through Scott, and then the other one was through a friend from another class who went to school with Nathan, and he ended up doing some work for that magazine too. And so, like you're saying, when you go to an art school, it's a lot of money, but you do buy into this network. Yeah. And that network helped both of us get our feet wet and start getting jobs. And continues to. Well, yeah. You know, so... Um, right now, getting work together to submit for the Mecca Collect show. Yeah. I've sold work through Mecca Collect almost every year since I graduated. So I'm still getting money from jobs that I get through Mecca. Yeah. And I did work actually for the school too. They hired me to do a map of Portland that they were going to be giving to prospective new students, I think. Hmm. And I did some work for the ICA that they paid me for, but they never used. It was going to be for a coffee tumbler, I guess. You know, those $20 ones you get at Starbucks. Yeah. They were going to be doing one of those for the ICA. And I did this really, I thought it was really good, like portraits of these guys and it said ICA on it. And it was all like cool line work and they paid me, but they never used it. Never ended up getting on a tumbler, which I kind of was bummed about because I wanted to have one of the tumblers. You'll just have to make one, I guess, yourself. <laughs> yeah, I know. I still have the art. I, I, the file. Yeah. And they paid pretty well because it's an art school. They have money. So the fact that they paid me for it and didn't use it. I'm surprised they paid you pretty well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it was better than Dispatch, let's put it this way. It wasn't great, but it was better than Dispatch. And they never put out other tumblers with other artists. It's not like they just didn't like the art. And that's the reason I just think they decided not to go the route of doing those. Because mm. they do have a little gift shop at the ICA where they sell like t-shirts and things. And so I think they were going to put it in their gift shop. Yeah. But doing work like that at the beginning, you'd learn so much about how to work with clients as far as giving them sketches of your ideas. Because when you're 
working as an artist, it's not enough to tell them your ideas. They have to see it visually. Yeah, you need to take them on the ride the whole way for them to feel like they're a part of it. Right. Understand the process. Yeah. We don't just wave a magic wand and boom, it's done. Right. And especially at the beginning of your career where people just don't have a lot of trust in you because you haven't really proven yourself much. Right. You haven't done a lot of work, so they don't know what your final piece is going to look like. They don't know if you even trust that it's going to be good. The fresher you are, the more sketches you'll have to show, probably, and the more detailed the sketches might have to be. Right. Right? Yeah. Or if you hire a seasoned professional illustrator that had been doing it for 30 years, you may not even need to see sketches, or you might just say, uh, just give me a thumbnail so I can just see basically right. what you're thinking. And that might be enough, but at the beginning, you might have to do detailed sketches to really show what you're going to do, right? Yeah. Definitely. I found that anyway. How are your contracts? You want to dig into that a little bit? Yeah, contracts. So I will say that it's a weakness of mine. I feel like almost none of the work I've ever done. I've done actual contracts where I wrote up an official contract and signed it and had them sign it. I think when you're going back and forth via email and if they agree to a price and things like that, that can be binding anyway. That is binding. Right. But it is good to do contracts because you want to have clauses that say if halfway through the job, they decide they want to just cancel it, they still have to pay you a certain amount. Yeah. Because you did half the work and things like that. Contracts can also be good. For instance, the contract that I do use when it's a bigger job, I'll basically relieve myself of any legal responsibility. So if they use the work for something and then I'm trying to think of a good example of this. Well, let's say someone hires me to do, they're doing an article on Paul McCartney, and they want a portrait of him for the article. I do a caricature portrait, and then let's say Paul McCartney decides, I'm going to sue this magazine. I don't like this portrait. It's slander. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. Defamation. His name or something, yeah. The contracts that I do use for situations like that basically relieve me of any responsibility. They're the one publishing it. They're the one responsible for that. That's just a wild example that's not likely to happen, but there are things that could come up. You don't want to be a part of getting any backlash for something that's really their project. They're hiring you to do the artwork, but it's not your project. I don't like contracts so much. I think I don't they're either. a formality that's scary for both parties. And it's like you're both trying to protect yourself and there's no trust. And the biggest thing is making sure you're both in agreement and it's written out. This could all be done through emails. This could be a written agreement instead of a contract, and then just by replying to the email that you agree to this, that's basically like signing a contract. That's how I typically do all my work now. It is written. It's in an email. I have it all laid out in a conversational format, bulleted out on what they should expect from me and when. So you're looking at your timeline, how much the project's going to cost, expectations both ways. You just kind of iron out those details, like payment schedule, that kind of stuff when you're going to get your sketches in and all that. As long as both parties are in agreement, that's basically a binding contract in my eyes. And when it's written and in the court of law too. So like you can use emails as your contract. Yeah, it's written. And when someone types their name, it's basically like a signature. Mm -hmm. So I definitely agree. I always feel like when I send a contract, the person's going to think I don't trust them or something. And that's why I want them to sign a contract. And I know that that's silly because if someone asked me to sign one, I wouldn't have any problem with it. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, I don't know about you, but I kind of let them dictate if they want a contract. 
I don't usually bring it up, but if they said, you know, we usually have the artist sign a contract, then I'm okay with that. So I just kind of let them decide whether they want to use a contract or not. Yeah, but contracts are nice in a way where it binds all those discussions together and makes it formal and easier. It's all in one place. It is easier in some ways, but it's it's not easy to make contracts either. You know, that's a lot of time. Do you have like a set contract that you basically use and then just kind of change it here and there if you need to for the specific job? I don't. I have set criteria that I need to line out. Yes, yeah, so yeah. it's mainly getting all the expectations out. Like, I'll make sure that they understand like this price includes so many revisions, but additional revisions are going to cost this. All the things that a contract would line out. But yeah. I, I try to do it more conversationally to build a relationship rather than be so cold. I feel like it's cold. That's how I feel too. But sometimes it does have to be. It is a business transaction. Yeah. It does have to happen sometimes. And it isn't a bad idea, too, to line out because sometimes people take so long to pay. Right. I know some artists will have in their contract, like, this is the price we've agreed to. As long as you've paid by 30 days of the artwork being completed, if it takes longer than that, then I do have basically like a late fee. Yeah. And that's not a bad idea. It helps you either get paid on time or if you're not going to get paid on time, you make more money. Right. And so that's an option too for people. But this is getting into the weeds a little bit because you have to actually get work, right, to worry about that. And that's the main focus of what I wanted to talk about here. And it's funny that both of us really got work in a similar way. And I think a lot of artists probably do with getting it through people you know. Yeah. And I didn't know a lot of people before I went to art school that could get me jobs. I just didn't know a lot of people that were that well connected or knew a lot about working as an artist. So that alone was worth going, I guess. Totally. And it's so much about reputation, how you treat people, no matter if you like them personally or not, if you actually want to hang out with them at a bar is irrelevant. You don't know who they know. Right. Every new person you meet, you don't know who they know. You don't know how they could help you. You might poo-poo them off and be like, oh, you work as a dentist. I'm never going to need to know you anymore. But they could know 15 other people that need your work exactly what you offer. Always go into situations thinking that way, thinking you don't know who they know. Treat everyone with respect. Your reputation is everything. Word of mouth spreads like fire. It spreads a lot faster when it's negative. If you had a negative experience at a restaurant, at a movie, you'll tell the first 10 people you see. But if you had a positive experience at a restaurant or a movie, you might be more likely to tell, I don't know, one or two people. Yeah, that's true. Negative reviews travel way faster. That's such a good point. So if you're rude to people and you treat people poorly, like that's going to spread. And there's less people that are willing to hire you because they don't want to deal with, who wants to deal with an arrogant artist that is rude to the people that are potentially their clients. Right. And then every client you have, make sure that relationship is great because you want their recommendation. You want maybe more work from them. You want them to talk about you to people they know. I'm not going to say a name, but I've read a couple things and I've heard things about a specific illustrator that lives in Europe. And they used to be huge throughout the 80s and 90s. They basically illustrated for every big magazine you could think of. And I guess they started to get really full of themselves and they became super arrogant and rude to clients. And now they don't work at all. And all you ever hear is negative things about them. And so it's like the last type of thing you'd want to spread around about you. Right. What kind of legacy do you want to leave? Right. People that haven't even worked with you are like, well, I've heard such bad things. Why would I want to work with that person? Right. 
We always hear about actors that are really hard to work with. That's not the type of person you want to be known as, as someone who's hard to work with. Right. People will hire you because you're easy to work with rather than how talented you are. And you can't look at your clients in like a hierarchical way where, okay, this is a really big job, so I'm going to really treat them nice. And then this job is just a small job. You have to treat everyone like they're really important. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you're going to get work that's more important and that you're going to get more work from because you're getting more exposure from it. But you should at least treat everyone so that they feel that you think that it's an important job and you're giving it your all. I'm trying to think of lessons I learned from these first jobs. I think I did learn a lot about things I don't want to do because I ended up learning I just didn't like doing editorial work. And so I'll still do it here and there, but it has to be a specific circumstance. And I really thought that's what I was going to do. The first couple I did, I liked doing. And then the more I did it, I realized I didn't like doing it. And so you might be at home listening and thinking, man, I would love to do children's books or editorial work. And you might get the chance one day to do those things and realize, oh, these aren't nearly as fun as I thought they'd be. I actually enjoyed doing art before. The type of art I was doing before that maybe didn't even pay or paid a lot less. So it's not all about the money, too. You have to be happy with what you're doing. Yeah. Biggest lessons I learned were communication and how important it is to be clear and be aware of even in emails. It's hard because tone isn't always read correctly in an email. Right. And so one, you have to be very careful about that and aware of that. And two, always be communicating and have open lines of communication with the client, no matter what you're doing. Make sure that they know what you're thinking and why you're doing things in certain ways around communication. I just blanked. I can't help you because I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't read minds. You're right. Communication is huge. Obviously, your art's the main thing, but if you can't communicate well with people, working with clients is going to be a disaster. Yeah. Not only do you have to be a good communicator and be able to get your ideas across verbally and in a written form, you also have to be able to be a good listener and understand the ideas they're getting across to you because those are the ideas that you need to churn through your head and put into art form, right? And if you're not comprehending what they're saying... Yeah. And so communication is not just about talking. It's actually more about listening. Right. Back to emails. It's so easy to misinterpret what someone's saying both ways. So like you could be reading a client's email and it seems really aggressive and you're failing and they're really down on everything. But that's not what they meant to have it sound like. Right. I've realized whenever there was a problem, one, don't respond right away to an email when your blood's pumping. Let it sit. You need to rethink, reevaluate, re-strategize how you're going to get the point across, if the ask is reasonable or not. Sometimes you just got to bite your lip and just do the thing instead of reacting and reacting and reacting. And so take a break for one. Two, when there's a problem, it is 100% times best resolved with a phone call or face-to-face. Face-to-face is always best, but if you can't get face-to-face, Pick up the phone and just have a chat because that can save a project and that could save a relationship and save stress across all fronts, save time. I'm phone phobic. Like I I hate picking up the phone. I hate talking. Yeah, me too. It's just so important to keep those lines of communication open and not jump to conclusions. I've saved so many projects, big projects that were so close to just being like, nope, we're not going to do it with you anymore. And in the email, it seemed like that's what it was. It's like, it seemed like the project was done, but I saved with a phone call. That's crazy. That's the biggest thing I've learned early on was how to communicate 
what not to do <laughs> when you're communicating, like how being aware of how you sound. It's very easy to sound arrogant and know-it-all. Mm-hmm. It's a give and take. You need to be open. That's such a good point. It's a good way to end the podcast too, is just on this communication and how important it is with clients. And that's probably the thing that I probably learned most too from those first jobs is how to communicate with clients. And so when you do get your first few jobs, focus in on that. Figure out how you're going to be able to comprehend what they're telling you, how you're going to be able to put that on paper to show them your ideas Mm -hmm. and get a good way to communicate so that you can replicate that moving forward. And you'll probably figure out in the first couple of jobs you do that maybe the way that you think that you're going to do it isn't going to work. So, you know, be willing to adapt. It never works. It never works how you originally think. It's kind of like art. You think of an idea, and then when you draw it out, it doesn't really look like maybe what you thought, but sometimes it's better than what you thought, and sometimes it's not as good as what you thought. And a lot of times you're tailoring how you deal with a situation based off of the situation, based on someone's preferences, how they communicate. So you're always changing. That's kind of why I didn't buy into the contract thing, because at every conversation I had with every client, so different. It's so different. It's so you true. You need to cultivate each one differently. That book that we both have of like business practices that has all the different pricing and everything. If you just were to read that book, say if you didn't know anything about working as an illustrator or graphic designer, it makes it almost seem like all clients are very similar and you're going to do it step by step and this is what you get paid. And that's just not the case at all. It's all over the place. Yeah. Actually, not just sometimes, a lot of times you're going to get hired by clients that have never hired an artist before. They don't even know the process. And that's actually sometimes the best clients because you get to dictate the process because they don't know how to hire an artist. So I'll be honest, I've taken advantage of those situations and made it so that the process was more in my favor and I didn't have to do as much sketching right. just because they didn't know any better. But even if they have a lot of experience with artists, it's different experiences. They're right. coming to the table with a totally different process. Well, not totally different. There's a lot of things that are similar, but it's never the same. It's never the same exactly. So it's just a good idea to find out from them. Like, have you hired artists before? How did you work with them? So you know what they're expecting. Mm. If they're expecting seven rounds of sketches, then it's good to know that because that's not usual. That's not how most people work. But if that's what the client needs, that then you need to know that. your price that you give them and stuff like that. Yeah, if they want seven rounds of sketching, that better affects your price because that's going to be big time drain. Right. Well, that was helpful. I think that was a great talk. I hope I will. I hope it was helpful for you guys. And I know it would have been helpful for me when I first started. So. So I'm glad that you were able to join us today. We both still have our ongoing thumbnail promo code on Etsy. So when you check out, use thumbnail in the coupon code box or whatever, and it gives you 25% off of anything in our stores. And anything else you want to add? Yeah, it's almost everything in my stores, but I haven't been able to put it on apparel yet, the discount. Oh, okay. Almost everything. Almost everything. <laughs> Basically, just use the code because, it, you know, it'll take the 25% off whatever it can. Yeah. Most of the That's stuff, That's the biggest discount I'll ever offer, too. And so use it while it's available, too, <laughs> to you. It's a great discount. I always hate this about Etsy, too. When you make a promo code... We made this promo code basically when we first started this podcast, right? Mm -hmm. You choose on Etsy which listings you apply it to when you make the code. So every time I upload something new to Etsy, a new print or something, I forget that I have to also apply all of my current codes to that new print. So if someone were to go to buy like a new print that I just put on yesterday, that promo code may not work if I forgot to add that. That's something you got to keep on top of if you run an Etsy store. Send us a message if that happens too. Yeah, most people do, yeah. I've actually had a few messages like that. Yeah, we'd be happy to fix that.
All right, well, we'll see you guys next time. Yeah, thanks for everything. We won't see you, but you'll hear us next time. (laughs) Yeah, hear you (laughs) next time. (laughs) Take care, guys. (laughs)